Well, today is one of our Q&A Sundays, and we do these on a regular basis because we recognise that it's really, really important for us uh, to acknowledge that we all have questions and to create a safe space within our spiritual family to be able to ask those questions. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we've got it all together. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we've had all of our questions answered. In fact, the more that we follow Jesus, the more that we find that there are all of these other things that start to come up. How does this work? Why are things this way? How does this match up with this? And in a healthy family, you have an opportunity to ask lots of those great questions and to be able to process through those things together. And so as a church, we believe that's really important too. We also recognise that the journey of following Jesus is a journey of faith, which means it's a journey of trust. And the word trust, by definition, means we don't have everything sorted out. You don't need to trust in something if you've got all of the answers. There's a sense where it's like, is this going to be okay? And that's perfectly fine. And so Jesus doesn't call us, as I said, to have everything sorted out, but just to take our next step and our next step and our next step to wrestle with the questions that we've got. So today we're going to do that, and uh, as always, if uh, the answers are inadequate and don't go deep enough, then feel free to come and chat more, happy to do that. Uh, But also, if there's any questions that it sparks for you today, please feel free to send them to me. You can feel free to text me during the service, that's totally fine, or uh, to email them to me later, uh, or give them to me on a piece of paper, because we will keep them for when we do our next lot of Q&A questions. So the first couple that we're going to look at uh, come from last weekend. There was a couple of questions that came up because it was Easter weekend. So first question that we've got today is, why is Easter called Easter? It's a very, very valid question. And uh, we did actually talk about this last year, so some of you may recognise some of what I'm about to say, but I don't mind doing that because it gives me a chance to talk about my favourite monk. His name is St Bede the Venerable which I think is the greatest name in the history of the world. St. Bede the Venerable. And he was a guy in the 7th century who did a lot of research into the origins of Easter, where Easter started, how come it's called Easter, uh, and lots of the questions that we've got. Uh, St. Bede spent quite a bit of time doing that. And so in his research, he concluded that the origins of the word Easter began with a goddess whose name was Eostra, who was the goddess of spring. And so in Oldie English, the uh, word for April was actually Eostra month. So spring month is what April was originally. And so there's an understanding that as Easter was generally in springtime and often in April, uh, that's why Easter came along. There are a couple of other theories, though, that it came from an old German word, which comes from an even older Latin word uh, for the word East. And the old Latin word is then the word for dawn. So the sun rises in the east, dawn comes from the east. And so there's an understanding that east er may have come from that as well. And so obviously Easter began in the northern hemisphere. And in the northern hemisphere at this time of year, everything's coming to life. Everything's bursting to life. The days are getting longer. And so there's this sense of all of that really resonating with what Easter is all about. So it may be that it came from that as well, east dawn. The other thing that's good to note is that some other languages don't even have a word for Easter. So in French and in Greek, they actually use the word Pasha for the Easter season, which is still a reference back to the Passover. So they still talk about it in that context because we understand that Easter happened at Passover time. So that's why uh, as well that they call it that rather than Easter. So I hope that's helpful. If anyone ever asks you, why is Easter called Easter? Now you've got a few answers to be able to give them. 
Someone else also asked, why is it called Good Friday? So why do we call it Good Friday? Which is a very, very valid question because when you think about the events that we reflected on last Friday, it's not good at all. It's very, very sad. It's devastating. It's unjust. It's tragic, all of the things that happen to Jesus. And so we should maybe call it Bad Friday or we should call it Black Friday, although I think that's now got some other connotations, so it's probably a little bit late for that. But it is a good question. Why on earth do we spend so much time talking about good on a day that is about someone dying? Normally when we think about people dying, people who have lived even really, really amazing lives, we don't celebrate their death. We often will celebrate their life. So if we think about someone like Martin Luther King Jr., we don't celebrate his death. We celebrate his birth. And so in America, they celebrate Martin Luther King Day, which is on the third Monday of January, which is around his birthday. So that's generally what we do. And we do some of that with Christmas, obviously. But why do we celebrate someone's death? Well, we know that's because there is far more to Jesus's death than just some good man who lived a really, really good life, who lived a really, really tragic death. We believe that Jesus was uniquely able to do something through his death that no one else was able to do, to be able to forgive us, to be able to set us free from all of the mistakes that we make, and to be able to give us a full and complete relationship with God. All of that is achieved through Jesus's death. And we also know that that's not the end of the story, that as we celebrated on Sunday, we know that Jesus's death leads to his resurrection. And so for all of those reasons, we celebrate Good Friday. Yes, we take time to reflect on how sad it is that all of these things happen to Jesus. We take the time to recognise the cost of the sacrifice, but we call it good because we know ultimately what came out of it. So next question, this one actually came in last time, but we didn't get a chance to answer this last Q&A Sunday. So if God knows the whole course of time, why does God need us to go to earth if he could put us in heaven or hell to start with? So if God knows where we're going to end up and spend our eternal destiny, why don't we just go there straight away? Why not cut out the middleman, be more efficient, forget this whole life business and just go straight where we're going to end up? Before we get into specifically answering the question that's there, we do want to talk about the difference between God knowing things and God causing things because sometimes this can kind of lead us to some of these sorts of questions. We do believe that God knows everything, that God exists outside of time. And so God knows everything from the end to the beginning, everywhere in between, and does know all of the choices that we're going to make because he exists outside of time. But that's very, very different to God causing us to make choices. And we believe that God gives us free will, that God gives us the ability to choose every decision that we make in our lives, that God doesn't force us to do any of those things, And the reason for that, in particular in terms of our relationship with God, is because God wants a relationship with us. And if you remove the element of choice from a relationship, it stops being a relationship and becomes incredibly toxic. So there are other schools of theology that you may have heard about in terms of the idea of predestination, which is this idea that God knows ahead of time whether we're going to end up in heaven or in hell, whatever that looks like. And so we're kind of predetermined to do that. And there's a group called the elect who are going to end up in heaven. And then there's a group called the non-elect who are not. And we wrestle with that. It's probably not something that fits with most of our theology here at Brooklyn Park because we would struggle a little bit to say, how can God create people 
that are automatically predetermined to miss out on a relationship with him. It doesn't seem like what we know about God revealed to us through Jesus. We do believe that God gives us the ability to choose. However, he does know what decision we're ultimately going to make. And so then we come back to this question. If God does know that, even if he doesn't cause it, then why don't we just end up in our eternal destiny straight away? Well, the first reason that I would say for that is because God doesn't want anyone to miss out on spending eternity with him. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. And what Peter's referring to there is that there were a group of people who were saying, why hasn't God wrapped this whole thing up by now? Why hasn't Jesus come back, finished time, and then it's all finished and it's all over? God promised he's going to do that, and he's kind of dragging his heels on this. Why doesn't he speed things up? Peter continues and says, no, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God's heart is that all of us make a decision to choose to be a part of his family. That's his deepest desire for every single one of us. But we also recognise that for Jesus, there was a lot more about a relationship with God than just about whether we get our ticket punched to go to heaven or not. Jesus seems far more passionate and far more focused about the idea of the kingdom, life the way that God created it to be, rather than about people getting their ticket to heaven. You will actually be hard-pressed to find many specific verses where Jesus says, you need to believe in me in order to go to heaven. And you can feel free to look that up later if you don't believe me. But you will not be hard-pressed to find a lot of verses where Jesus talks about the kingdom being available to us. Here's a bunch of examples. In Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, in what we know as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that we should pray, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells his disciples, go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. And in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends his disciples out, he says, heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus talks about the kingdom and says the kingdom is available to you now. So why doesn't God just take us straight to heaven or whatever our eternal destiny is? Because we get to taste it now. We get to kind of have a bit of a teaser trailer of what heaven is going to be like in the here and now. As people who choose to follow Jesus and to embody the values of Jesus, we actually get the opportunity to experience the kingdom, heaven on earth, in this life. And Jesus calls us as groups of people who join together to give others the opportunity to also experience the kingdom. That in the things that we do, in the way that we relate to each other, in the way that we connect with each other, in the way that we care for each other, we actually get the privilege of being able to help other people to have a taste of what heaven is going to be like. So this isn't just a kind of waiting period where we've got our ticket, now we've just got to kind of grind it out until we finally get to cash that in. This is an opportunity for us to start to experience the kingdom now. That's why God leaves us here, to be able to enjoy that and embrace that. So I hope that's helpful in terms of that question. 
Now this next question, which is the final one we're going to talk about today, because it is a doozy. So stay with me, bear with me, we're going to pull this all apart, but it is quite long, so <laughs> just bear with me. Alright, here we go. My understanding is that no one can claim that they haven't heard about the presence of God and therefore are protected from God's judgment. Is this correct? And if so, how are they convicted but still reject? Is this the work of the Holy Spirit or related to Paul's verses in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16? I can feel guilty when I haven't perhaps spoken a word to a non-believer and feel that my reticence may cause that person to not receive salvation. Should I stick pins in myself? So I want to ask, answer that last question first. No, you should not stick pins in yourself. That's just good general advice, not just related to this question, but all questions. You never need to stick pins in yourself. Please don't do that. It's very dangerous. But let's pull the rest of this question apart. First of all, no one can claim that they haven't heard about the presence of God and therefore can say that they're protected from God's judgment. What's being asked here is to say, well, is it like even if people haven't been presented with the message of Jesus, is it true that everyone has some level of awareness about God? And if that's true, does that mean that no one should be able to claim, well, I didn't know anything about Jesus and therefore I'm kind of exempt from all judgment and all those sorts of things? So to unpack this, let's look at the verses that were mentioned. So Romans chapter 12, verses 12 to 16, and I'm going to read it from the message translation. If you sin without knowing what you're doing, God takes that into account. But if you sin knowing full well what you're doing, that's a different story entirely. Merely hearing God's law is a waste of your time if you don't do what he commands. Doing, not hearing, is what makes the difference with God. When outsiders who've never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. Their response to God's yes and no will become public knowledge on the day God makes his final decision about every man and woman. The message from God that I proclaim through Jesus takes into account all these differences. So a little bit of context for where this passage fits into things. So this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, and in particular Paul's writing to the Jewish believers in Rome. And so it's really important for us to recognise that the primary focus of what Paul's trying to unpack here is to kind of push back a little bit against some of the Jewish religious people who were saying, I'm an Israelite, therefore the rules are different for me. I kind of get a bit of an exemption from a whole bunch of things because, you know, I'm an Israelite. And Paul is pushing back very strongly in what he's saying here by saying, no, 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 it doesn't matter about your birthright. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do. It's all about whether you believe in what Jesus has done for you. End of story. doesn't matter whether you're an Israelite or not, Jewish or not. It's irrelevant. Every one of us are held accountable based on our response to what Jesus has done for us. But Paul does make it clear that all of us have a level of understanding to come back to the question. And I love the message translation that says, God's way of life is woven into the very fabric of our creation. There's something deep within that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. And that's a beautiful way of phrasing it. Every single one of us baked into our DNA is an awareness of God, an awareness of God's right and wrong, an awareness of the way that we're supposed to live our lives. 
So on the one hand, we would say, yes, everyone is aware of God. That's what Paul is saying. But we also have to believe that God creates space for us to be able to uh, make decisions based on what we do and don't understand. And so there's lots and lots of examples that we could use around that. Obviously, we first of all think of babies. When babies tragically pass away, we recognise that God has an understanding of their level of understanding and is aware of their receptivity to what God is offering them. And we believe that God welcomes them with open arms, without a level of understanding that all of us would have about Jesus. We also would say people who've never had the opportunity to hear the message of Jesus. So we often talk about remote tribes in places like Africa or in South America who've never even met anyone who could talk to them about Jesus. We have to recognise that even though they've got some level of awareness, God must have some way of being able to understand how much they do and don't know and be able to welcome them in on the basis of that. But I would take that a step further and challenge us to think about people who live in countries where there's another dominant religion or a dominant thought that exists, where their culture is dominated by belief systems like Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. They're obviously not presented with what we would say is an accurate picture of Jesus because their culture says a whole bunch of other things about Jesus that we wouldn't necessarily agree with. So surely God's got an ability to be able to work through that and to understand their level of understanding in the way that he responds to them. I would actually take that a step further and say as our Western culture becomes more and more secular and there are more and more people who've never had the opportunity to be a part of a church and as we recognise that there are lots of people who've been a part of churches where we would say the message of Jesus hasn't necessarily been uh, given to them in a super accurate way. They might have been presented with a picture of Jesus that is incredibly judgmental or incredibly legalistic or incredibly exclusive, and they might have turned away from that because they're like, that doesn't seem to match up. We also know there's lots of people who've had really bad experiences in church for all sorts of different reasons, and a lot of them have walked away as well. Surely God's got an ability to understand what's going on for them and to be able to then meet them where they're at. So how do we navigate through this? How do we navigate through us being accountable for what we do know and recognising that all of us have a level of awareness but also allowing space for God to understand what we don't know? Should we feel confident about how God's going to treat us and the people around us or should we feel concerned about it? When questions like this come up, for me, I always want to go back to Jesus because we always believe that Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. And so any time that I'm wondering, how is God going to interact with someone, I always go back and think about Jesus and the way that he interacted with people. And so what do we see in Jesus' approach to the people that he connected with while he was here? We see amazing openness, incredible generosity, welcoming people, meeting people where they're at based on their level of understanding. Now, we do recognise that Jesus had some harsh words to say, but almost all of those words were reserved for the religious leaders who wanted to exclude people, who wanted to judge people, who wanted to dump extra burdens on people. Most of the hard things that Jesus says are actually directed at them. So if God is actually like Jesus 
then my default would be to believe that God is aware to the depths of who I am, what my level of understanding is, and that that's true for everyone around us. And then God has the ability to judge us appropriately based on our level of understanding. So what about those who choose then to walk away based on their level of understanding? Well, again, it's God's call about that. And we believe that God can understand why people might walk away based on some of the experiences that they've had, especially if they're painful. But we do have to leave space to recognise that God gives us the ability to say thanks but no thanks, as we talked about in the last question. Otherwise, we'd just be robots and we don't have a choice. There has to be some ability for us to be able to say thanks but no thanks to God. What does that look like? Well, that question wasn't asked, so I'm not going to answer it today. So I hope that that's helpful in terms of the first part of the question to say, does everyone have a level of understanding or not? And if so, what does that look like? But then we move into the second part of the question, which was to say, sometimes I feel guilty about not sharing because what if I stop someone else from being saved or rescued or choosing to follow Jesus? Even if all that we've just said is true, what if I'm responsible for not telling someone about Jesus at just the right time that means that they then don't have the level of awareness that they could have? My answer to this question would be, any time that we're feeling like we have an obligation to do something, we've probably got things a little bit twisted because we're moving back towards religious expectation. If I don't do this, then there's a consequence and something bad is going to happen. That's what obligation is all about. But we believe that the message of Jesus is called gospel because that word means incredibly amazing good news that something has changed for everyone. That's what the word gospel actually means. And so Jesus' desire for us is that we are so impacted by the incredible, amazing good news of what he's done for us that we spent a lot of time focusing on last week at Easter that we can't help but share it with other people. It's like if you see a really great movie or you hear a really great song or you read a great book or you hear a really amazing story about someone who's done something, what's your response to that? I want to tell someone. You've got to go and see this movie. It's incredible. You've got to hear this song. You've got to read this book. Let me tell you about this story. When we hear good news, we want to share that with other people. But we want to share it. We don't share it out of obligation. I have to share this with people. We do it because we really want to. So the challenge for us is to say, do we really understand how much Jesus has done for us? Because if we do, we should want to share that good news with the people around us. Not share it because if we don't, there might be some implication of that. It is staggering that Jesus gives us the privilege of being the ones who are his message bearers, the ones who get to have the privilege of being able to help other people to discover what Jesus is all about. As we talked about last week, we're sent out into the world in the same way as the Father sent Jesus. We're his message carriers. We're his agents of reconciliation. God chooses us to do that because he believes in us. Now, do we miss opportunities to do that? Of course we do. We all have bad days. We all have days where we're tired or we're distracted or we're stressed out about things and we think later, oh, that would have been a great opportunity to be able to share something or to ask a great question or to be able to just help someone to explore spirituality more. All of us have those experiences. But we don't need to feel the pressure that if we miss those opportunities, that's it, and now that person's eternal destiny is at stake. 
We believe that God is so much bigger than that and so much more able to understand where we're coming from that we can take confidence in him. And again, just to be clear, don't stick pins in yourself. So I hope that's helpful. I know that's a really, really full-on question, but I thought there was a lot in it for us to be able to unpack. And as I said, if you'd like to unpack that more, uh, then please come and chat further. So that's all the questions we're going to unpack today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to transition across and take communion together. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that while you were here on earth, you asked amazing questions, that your focus with the people that you connected with was so often to get them thinking, to get them processing through things rather than to just give them the answers. We thank you that following you is not about us having everything together. It's not about us having everything sorted out. But it is about us being able to trust you wherever we're at and to be able to just take our next step with you and then our next step and our next step. And to recognise that as we continue to move further on, we get more and more opportunities to discover more and to learn more and to embrace more. We thank you for what we've just talked about, this amazing reality that you choose us to be the ones who help other people to discover more about you. It never ceases to amaze me that you trust us that much. And so I pray that as we head out into another week, that you would give us the opportunity to just be aware, to have our spiritual radar up for the opportunities where we can ask a great question, where we can share a word of encouragement with someone, where we can sit with someone and process through the questions that they've got, and where we can release others from the burden of feeling like they have to have everything sorted out before they can follow you. Help us to be your people, your hands, your feet, your ears, in your mouth as we move out into this week. In your name we pray. Amen.